When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Will Erskine is on the board. Do you think Canadians want to call in the military to apprehend the last 10% who are unvaccinated and force the jab right into their arms? Then why do we care? Here's Scott Thompson! There you go. Hey, don't shoot the messenger. We know who writes those. Uh, good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine on the board in the newsroom. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Uh, and will be joining us around the big round table coming up uh, after the 4.30 news. Hope you hang around for that. We would love to hear from you. Uh, and, and, of course, what your issues are of the day. Uh, feel free to join us on social media, Twitter, our Facebook pages as well. The poll question of the day, do you support proof of vaccination for LCBO and cannabis shops and uh, you know whatever your opinion is on this question i think what's fascinating is it's 51 percent no 49 percent yes which means it's something that people are very separated uh, very divided uh over and really at this point with 90 percent of canadians vaccinated it's really a moot point so again this is more divisiveness this is more uh, you know, to take the attention away from government, let's put the attention on the one or two or 10 or five or 15 percent that either can't get vaccinated or fearful of vaccination or will never get it at all. And why do we keep focusing on that? Why do we keep focusing on this, you know, on the convoy, on, you know, it's just bizarre. Instead, we should be patting ourselves on the back on how well we've done with all of this. And the fact that, uh, you know, we've got so many of us vaccinated. And yet we've, we've let the extremes. And I'm telling you, it's the extremes on either side. You know, I don't think this protest is about border crossings and getting goods and uh, goods and supplies from one country to the other because both countries are in agreements with this so it's a moot point it's also a moot point because 90 percent of the truck drivers are already vaccinated just like the public so again what has happened is this is less about supply chains and more about mandatory vaccination again your uh point of view what have you but why are we being divided on this why are we letting leadership divide the entire country over 10 percent of the population it's lack of leadership it's diverting attention away from leadership you know as if somehow if we get another five percent vaccinated that this is all going to go away that the problems within our health care system are all going to go away so, you know, my thoughts, people are asking me, emailers and such, you know, uh, what, what are your thoughts on the convoy? It's like, it's sad. It's sad that it's going on. It's sad that the truckers feel that they have to do this. And they're put in the situation that they are. So, again, you know, we've got, what happened to sunny ways? We're divided over vaccines, even though the majorities of us agree it's a good idea. We're divided over climate change, yet the majority of us are all on board. What we're, what we're debating is how to do it. 
But yet, if you don't agree with them, you're a denier. You know, it's amazing, whether it's climate change, whether it's gender, a feminist prime minister. Well, what's a feminist? Someone who supports equal rights for female. Well, I'm not, I guess I can't speak for all Canadians, but isn't that the majority of us? So why the divisiveness? What happened to the sunny ways? Instead, we're, we're, we're arguing. And, you know, uh, jokingly, I wrote the, the intro for Kurt today. And it's like, what do you, like, what do you want people to do? You know, you may get a couple more percentage points vaccinated. I'm not sure what that's going to do. But the rest, you're not. So why do we keep separating ourselves over a small percentage of the population who in the end, who cares? It's not affecting me. I'm vaccinated. I've had it. Live to tell. Yes, get vaccinated. Yes, follow the protocol. But come on. Like, this is dividing a nation as if we're like the United States. Like half the people believe in it and half the people don't. Well, that's not the case here. 90% of Canada believes in this. We're all on the same team. Yet why are we letting the media, why are we letting our politicians, namely our prime minister, divide us over this? Sandra's on the line. yourself, Sandra, uh, thanks for uh, coming on the show. What are your thoughts? Hi, my thoughts are that uh, I've been waiting two years to get a cancer diagnosis. I finally have it. The reason for the wait, of course, is all the protocols and now we can't do surgery, blah, 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 whatever. I don't care. Um, now I have my diagnosis. Now I have surgery on Tuesday, which is good news. I feel okay for that. But I have to go for a COVID-19 uh, test on Sunday. Surgery's on Tuesday. And uh, I have to, it doesn't matter what I test out as, but I asked, what if I come out positive? Are you doing the surgery? Well, yeah. Well, if I come out negative? Well, yeah. Well, then, what's the point of the test? Secondly, if I come out, let's say I come out, I test negative. I'm double vaxxed, by the way. I wear masks. I do these social protocols. What if I, well, Dr. Tam, nine or ten days ago on national television, stated, this is Dr. Tam stated, you can have a negative test in the morning, go and sit in her medically sealed room for four hours, do the same test, and come out positive. Yeah. <laughs> so why am I doing a test that is doesn't matter? I'm still having the surgery. My bowel is still going to get sucked out of me. But why am I doing this test? Like this just doesn't make sense. And they keep moving the goalposts. Oh, ugh. anyway, that's me. Thank you for my, so much for sharing your story, and good luck yeah. with all this. Give oh, us a call I'm- back and and tell us how the whole experience went for you when you're feeling good. Good luck to you yeah. moving forward. It is 3.15. Man, you know, like, that's the other side of this. All the surgeries that have, that have, have been uh, postponed because of all of this. And, and again, the focus, why don't we have a medical system that can do surgeries in, in, in such in a timely manner before the pandemic? You get pandemic hits, it, it cripples you.
that's the discussions we need to be having. Not a damn convoy. Uh, the one great thing about having a Canadian winter and uh, the sort of weather that we've been experiencing in the last little while is you get to go out and enjoy it. And, uh, um, man, I, you know, I've been skating on outdoor rinks uh, for uh, eons since I was a little kid and remember it fondly. And it's great that we are still doing it and attracted to it and uh, get out and out of the arena and into the uh, and out to the great outdoors uh, to take advantage of this. And one of the great spots we all know prince's point my goodness uh you know long before it was ever organized in any way people have been skating around uh but now royal botanical gardens has updated the skating experience at prince's point and uh it is pretty cool so let's bring in tice teismeyer uh head of natural lands for royal botanical gardens and is with us now tice thanks for the time i hope you're well thanks for having us on this is great to talk this is a great experience. I mean, the pictures are amazing. So uh, for those that don't know, there's lots of new Hamiltonians. Uh, talk about this experience and what you've done to it to enhance it uh, lately. Yeah, sure. Um, two things, of course. Princess Point is the city of Hamilton corner of Coots uh, Paradise property within the RBG. Um, basically, it's the tip of Lake Ontario. And easy to get to the water there and so that's where we have canoe activity kayak activity and if it actually turns into winter for a change you actually can skate so um we've definitely with the crush of people who are just thrilled to get out and enjoy the canadian winter up the game down there because there's just so much to be seen and so many thrills that uh Mm. yeah what do we have we we've uh, set up an area well a we're looking after the ice as best as we can in a challenging winter here with the snowstorm. Uh, it gives you a place to skate more formally. Uh, on top of that, then you, uh, what do you got? There's a container where you can pick up some food. There's a fire pit where you can hang out and snack on your food, get a beverage. It's uh, it's basically a little bit of a hint of what you might see if you went to uh, Ottawa and went on the Rideau Canal. Yeah, that's great. What a great idea. You talked about how, uh, you know, obviously people have been doing this and, and, and at Coots for years. Uh, it, it seemed to be more interest now because of a pandemic, not as much to do. So people are rediscovering the great outdoors. Uh, what's it been, you know, like post pandemic and pre pandemic? Well, I guess I can't say post yet, but where we are now in the interest this winter. Uh, what would I say? The, the desire to come out there and relive old memories from yesteryear, because I must say almost every Hamiltonian definitely has some memory of going down to Princess Point over yeah. the years and uh, and skating, for example. It's been almost it's been overwhelming. That's what I would say. It's overwhelming with the number of people who are just looking to recapture that memory, plus the number of little kids they bring who are getting that memory for the first time. Um, I would say the real challenge is. Princess Point, at best, you can park 80 people. And so if you want to come and visit and and not struggle with getting there, public transit is your choice because there's a bus stop right beside it. So uh, that was my next question, Tice. How do we access this? How do we get into this place? That's right. Uh, It's in the neighborhood of uh, Westdale there in Hamilton. Uh, But you can get at it from two ways. You can come around from the Bayfront Park area because the waterfront trail on one end is Bayfront Park. other end is Princess Point, so you can just enjoy a walk along the waterfront. That can be, of course, pretty darn breezy on a cold winter day. Or you can uh, come down, what's the address? In the end, it's Longwood Road, 335 Longwood Road. Yeah. 
um, bus stop right there at the entrance, or we actually have bike racks if you're a real ambitious cyclist in the winter. Hey, they're out there. Uh, and what about conditions? What's it like this year? Let's see. What would I say? It started as the most magical giant ice rink you could ever imagine there when it first froze. <laughs> yeah. Two two kilometers of, um, yeah, arena ice, basically. Yeah. The weather and the storms have really beat it up. So, of course, we took on, what, there, 10 inches of snow, which kind of buried it, but it also weighs down the ice. So then it started to sink a bit, which refloods it. You get into quite a little slushy tangle there. Um, yeah. And it, the other part, and this is a very important one to appreciate, is it is the tip of Lake Ontario. So Lake Ontario is moving the ice around a lot. So it tends to get fractures in it as a result of the lake just heaving up and down. A couple, it, Basically, the lake heaves up and down a couple inches every day. If you get a big windstorm, then the lake could shift a foot. So um, we've got to really be fairly... I wouldn't say strict, but informative on the fact that, guess what, the ice out there is is on the move. And so as long as you stay in the sheltered bay at Princess Point, the ice is right. uh, sheltered. But if you get beyond it, you could find yourself in actual open water or super thin ice. So if somebody, a family wants to head down to ice to do this, uh, what should we bring? What, what is the best way to prepare for this? How do we make the day uh, memorable? That's right. Excellent question. Um, well, you might want to bring it. A little bit changed to purchase some snacks, you no know, hot chocolate or something like that. Um, otherwise, bring your skates because uh, we don't have a skate rental going on. And uh, I, I do recommend taking the bus or walking. Um, it's not far from the main core transit route across the city either there on Main Street. Um, but some warm clothes because uh, it is you're down at Lake Ontario, basically. And so when the wind blows, the wind really blows. There you have it. Tice Teismeyer with us, head of natural lands for Royal Botanical Gardens. And the great news is uh, with the winter, we are receiving uh, the natural ice rink is open. And not quite what we're used to uh, with the Zamboni on it uh, in an enclosed arena, but way more fun. Tice, thanks for, uh, for all the information here. Good luck with this this season. Yeah, thanks very much. Looks like we'll have several weeks to come. Yeah, I think we'll be doing it for a while. 328 News is on the way. All right, interesting story. Uh, and we all know Neil Young, and, and, you know, ever since early on in his life and his career, he's always been an activist and always stood by what he believes in. And uh, he's not happy that uh, Spotify, who, where of course, you can stream Neil Young, you can also uh, stream Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan, a uh, podcaster who's uh, said some pretty extreme views on uh, on on vaccination and 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 COVID nineteen and and a lot of it not true. So uh, Neil Young and it's his music, so I guess he can do this. Uh, said, you know what? Uh, there ain't room for uh, me and Joe Rogan on the same service. So either you remove Joe Rogan or you remove me. And Spotify uh, announced that uh, that Neil Young's music would no longer be uh, available, and they hope to see him soon. Let's bring in Alan Cross, host of the ongoing history of of new music and with us now alan thank you for the time i hope you're well so far so good yes are you surprised at any of this is, is the outcome anything different than what you anticipated no no this is going to be a fairly short news cycle story simply yeah. because um neil young is 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 a grumpy guy who's got lots of uh principled stands on on many different things uh he it, it, it's a great attention getter it's just you know another thing uh that spotify has to deal with when they're protecting joe rogan um 
And Neil doesn't have a really big presence on Spotify. Meanwhile, Joe Rogan is their $100 million man. Each of his podcasts yeah. is downloaded somewhere between 11 and 14 million times. A lot of money is being made from Joe Rogan. So the choice was fairly simple. If you're looking at it from a bloodthirsty spreadsheet point of view, yeah, see you, Neil. You go and have your music played on all the other uh, streaming music services. Uh, we're going to stand by Joe. Uh, does this mean um, that Canadians don't care? I mean, you said a short news cycle, um, you know, what's done is done. People move on. Uh, would Neil be happy with our uh, impression of this, that we just move on? What, what he has done is he's raised awareness to, of this situation. Um, yeah. The, the caveat here is this, you know, we will move on from this. Unless there are other artists who decide to join Neil in his boycott. If it is a, a number of you know more high-profile classic rock artists, okay, that could help the position. That could put more pressure on Spotify. Uh, but the best thing that could possibly happen is for the the major streamers, the Drakes, the Weekends, the Justin Bieber's, the Dua Lipa's, the uh, Cardi B's, if they were to join Neil in this, and uh, so far we haven't seen anything like that, it would help. If there were um, some other classic rock artists to join Neil in this whole thing, hasn't happened yet. But if that does, uh, we will certainly see this will put more pressure on Spotify. Uh, something that, that needs to be pointed out is that Spotify in their statement yesterday said that, look, we've removed 20,000 podcasts that are disseminating disinformation and misinformation. Uh, we take this very seriously. Oh, you do? Do you really? So there's one rule for <laughs> Joe Rogan, the guy that you spent $100 million for, and a rule for the other 20,000 people, uh, apparently. Now, as, as Spotify continues to go down the podcast route, which is turning out to be a very profitable thing for them, they're going to have to make more and more of these choices, especially if, they are, uh, if, if these podcasts are exclusive to the platform. If they're just distributing material from other people they're acting as a distributor that's one thing but they are the source and owner of the joe rogan show that's a different situation and they become responsible for the content that they own when does this become an issue of free speech you know many not uh, may not agree uh, with what joe rogan has to say but will defend his right to say it and of course the right to speak up and debate it um, you know, whether it's a disclaimer or what have you, um, at what point does freedom of speech? And, you know, I, I don't, de don't mean to pretend, uh, to be defending him, but what about freedom of speech here? Well, a couple of things. A lot of people misunderstand the first amendment in the United States. The first amendment protects free speech from being quashed by the government. Spotify is not the government. They are a private mm -hmm. organ. They are a, a corporation and they can set the parameters for, what sort of stuff that they carry based on everything from the law to uh, their personal preferences. Uh, at the same time, there is that cherished thing, especially in the United States, where people should be allowed to say things that, well, are not, you know, outright hate speech. Uh, they should be able to say things that are distasteful because that's the kind of dialogue we cherish in a democracy. So that's certainly going to uh, come up. But a lot of people, like I say, are going to completely distort it because they're saying that this is a First Amendment issue. Well, no, it's not. 
<laughs> because the First Amendment doesn't apply to the kind of speech mm. regulated by, uh, by, by a, a corporation. Does this, the Neil Young issue, help this debate make it more, make us more conscious of it, or does it just dividing us even more? It's, I, I in other words, in other words, we'll have, we'll have platforms for those on the left, and then we'll have platforms for those on the right. Yeah, this, it's just part of the politicization of, of the vex, of the, uh, vaccine and of the, uh, the pandemic. It mm. is showing that, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's very largely an American thing um, because you're either, you know, on one side or the other and you can't be in the middle. So uh, it, it just continues the divisive nature of, of American dialogue right now. I, I think most Canadians, unless they're hardcore Joe Rogan fans, are going to be looking at this and going, oh, well, that's interesting. Uh, America's fighting with itself again. Um, but I could be wrong. Uh, and, you know, we'll see. Um, Neil is, is, like I say, a very principled person. He's going to stick with it. Uh, we'll see exactly what other things come up within the Spotify universe that put pressure on them to become a more of a policeman about the material that they carry. Alan Cross with us, host of the ongoing History of New Music, talking about Neil Young uh, and Spotify, parting ways over Joe Rogan and his space on Spotify. As always, Alan, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You're welcome. All right, lots of chatter when uh, Uber and, and various services like this started making their way into our world, I guess, several years ago. Uh, now, and boy, you think about it, during a global pandemic, uh, would we have survived without them? Uh, but obviously, uh, the way that they all started and the way that they are typically not run as normal businesses uh, or traditional businesses are or were, uh, obviously, there was lots of conflict. Well, interesting to hear that Uber has struck a deal with the private sector union, United Food and Commercial Workers of Canada, which represents at least 250,000 workers at companies, including Maple Leaf, Loblaws, and Molsons, and will have the ability to provide representation to about 100,000 Canadian drivers and couriers if requested by the workers. To talk more about all of this, Brett Chang is with us, one of the hosts of the Peak Daily Podcast. That's the Peak Daily Podcast covering everything in the world of business and is with us now. Brett, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, and thanks so much for having me, Scott. I remember when we, uh, when there was chat of this, uh, years ago, when these services started, that, that many thought that it would be impossible to unionize, that just the way that they were set up, uh, it, it just, it, it didn't jive with the traditional union. How did they even make this happen? Yeah, well, one of the big challenges with these new business models is they don't fit perfectly into existing, and in many cases, outdated labor law. And so yeah. the primary issue is that, uh, Uber drivers and delivery partners, they're independent contractors. And so they, at least to today, have not been able to organize. Now, what Uber did is they listened to their, their, their driver partners and the delivery workers, and they heard that they want more representation. They want to see at the table when it came to certain issues. And so they struck up this partnership with the UFCW to provide them with more of a voice. And so that's kind of what's going on. So what does this mean for the individual Uber drivers? And I mean, we've all chatted with them. We've all heard uh, the trials and tribulations and things that they deal with uh, as they try to maneuver through this new model, as, as you put it. What does this mean for the driver? What, does, what, what do they get out of this? 
Yeah. So for drivers, first, it gives them representation right away. So if someone gets deactivated from the platform or has an account related issue, they can use this labor representation and the union to raise their voice and have a seat at the table in those discussions with Uber about whether that was fair or appropriate. And the second component to this is that there's a bigger vision that both the union and Uber have to transform or modernize Ontario labor laws. And so what they're looking for are things like a new employment status, somewhere between a full employee and an independent contractor, which allows uh, mm. workers to have the flexibility of the Uber platform, but still be entitled to certain rights like a minimum wage and vacation pay and so on. So why did Uber jump on board this time? Because obviously uh, many of these services have rejected this sort of thing in the past saying, hey, it doesn't apply to us. Uh, Was it just time for them? Is this beneficial for everyone? So for Uber, it's a two-sided marketplace. There's both kind of the riders and the consumers of their services, but there's also the workers, the drivers, the delivery partners who actually provide the service. And from Uber's perspective, they have to make sure that both parties are satisfied. And so if the drivers and the delivery partners aren't happy Mm. with the uh, platform and, and how it's functioning, then that's a big problem for Uber. And so they thought, well, let's give them a voice. Let's talk to labor. Let's find a way to work with everybody and bring everyone to the table and try to find a way to resolve some of the issues that uh, drivers and delivery partners have historically had with the platform. So what does this mean for the future for Uber drivers? Uh, is Are there membership dues now or something to that nature? So the all of the fees associated with this are going to be provided by both the union, the UFCW, and Uber. So there's no fees associated with this for drivers themselves. Now, that might not be true in the future. If Uber and the UFCW do actually accomplish what they're hoping to, which is legislative overhaul to modernize Ontario labor laws, then there may be at that point. But until then, uh, it's status quo for the drivers. They simply have more of a voice uh, and a seat at the table. What does this mean for users of uh, higher costs in any way? So uh, as of right now, there are no higher costs associated with this. I think, you know, if you're a rider, probably the best case scenario here is that drivers will feel like they really do have a voice and they'll be happier and able to provide a better service. That's probably the best possible outcome. And I think this is a real step forward in doing that. Brett Chang has been with us, one of the hosts of the Peak Daily podcast, covering everything in the world of business. Brett, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. No problem. Thanks a lot, Scott. 356 News at the top of the hour. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Hey, how are you? I'm Scott Thompson. It's Hamilton Today. Sorry, I'm just kidding. It's a private joke between Will and I. I'm, I'm, uh, I've got some hearing issues. Might as well be honest about this. Uh, I've got some hearing issues. And you know how some people lose their sense of smell and taste after COVID? Apparently with me, it's my hearing. But just like our healthcare system, my hearing was in pretty bad shape before the pandemic. Uh, and yeah, so it's like I'm hearing less and less and less every day. And, and maybe that's a good thing because perhaps I'll stop speaking one day. Uh, and that might... Maybe, maybe lots will enjoy that. Uh, but anyway, uh, so um, uh, I don't know why I'm telling you that. Has anybody had that issue? Has anybody got hearing issues as related to COVID? Or has this nothing to do with COVID and I'm just getting damn old and spent too much time in music radio? I can hear the crickets. I can hear that. 
All right. Uh, what have we done? Uh, Hamilton today. Will's over there behind the board. In the newsroom is Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard watching the world spin. It will be joining us around the big round table uh, coming up after the 430 news. Jump in for that. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Start 9900 on your cell if you want to throw something on the table for us to jaw on. All right. It, it's I'm kind of disappointed watching this whole convoy because I, I just think it's all a moot point. I, I, I don't think there's really a need for any of it. And, um, yeah, um, I, I support uh, some aspects of it and not others uh, on both sides of this. And uh, But, again, to me, it just seems uh, so unnecessary. And I'm not sure why we're dividing the country over 10% of the population who probably won't get a vaccination anyway. All right. That being said, there is a convoy. So uh, when you're a reporter, you got to get out and see what's going on. Ken Mann has done that on the street and of course uh, with 900 chml covering all of this ken tell us what you saw today where you were and and uh, what all went down well yeah scott i was down in the the area of barton and centennial parkway this morning as well uh, i drove along the qew between hamilton and uh, beamsville and i uh, got to see all the overpasses along the way so there was really i would say it was big crowds out there today by the time you add up all the people who were along the roadsides on Barton and Centennial and all of those along the overpasses. I, I wouldn't say it would be an exaggeration to say there was a couple thousand people out to support the trucker protest today. Did you talk to any of them? And Because we hear it, it's quite varied. I mean, this has gone from an issue about crossing trucks from, uh, you know, between the Canada and the United States border to now, uh, you know, a vaccination mandate sort of convoy. Uh, what are the people who are protesting saying? Well, uh, I had a chance to talk to a few of the truckers, more of the supporters than the truckers overall. And uh, really what it comes down to, Scott, and uh, it's it's the same message that, we heard uh, during the election campaign, largely from the uh, People's Party group, uh, freedom of choice is really yeah. what it comes down to for for most or all of those that I spoke to who were, who were out there today. So 90% we're hearing of the truckers are vaccinated anyway, as are the same with Canadians. Why Why do you think we're so caught up in this? Uh, why we're so concerned over the last 10%? Well, I, I, I really think that, as, as I said with the, the freedom of choice message, it's, it's a lot of those people that I spoke to today who were out in support were actually among the vaccinated. They made that point. Yeah. But really, uh, what their message is, is they're not going to hold this into the face of the 10% who are not. They, they say, you know what, if, if that's the way they feel, they should be allowed to feel that way and they shouldn't be forced. Mm-hmm to um, stake their livelihood on on the vaccination issue. And uh, so really, that's that's what this message today seemed to be. That's what that's what I took away from it anyway. It'll be fascinating to see what message resonates out of this at the other end once it's all done. If if uh, again, as you said, the majority of these people or a lot of them that are protesting are are fully vaccinated. It's less about themselves and more about why are we why are we demonizing those that are still for some reason uh, not on board? Uh, Has do you think it's got to the point where people are just going to say, let's move on with this? Either you made your choice. Let's move on. 
Well, a lot of these people would like to to move on. It's uh, for them. It's a belief issue. It's, it's what democracy yeah. stands for and what they believe yeah. uh, they should be uh, allowed to do. And and uh, you know, when they make an argument like that, you you have to. I agree. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I want to say it properly, but you, you. I mean, you want to respect everyone's point of view, right? Everyone. Absolutely has a position and, and we live in a country where you're allowed to verbalize that opinion. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the, uh, frankly, I rather enjoyed a lot of the people I talked to today. They, they made some interesting points, not points that I necessarily agree with personally, but it's things that they thought about and have been thinking about for a long time. It's uh, remember when we used to be able to debate this instead of, you know, dividing and being on one side or the other. Uh, Ken Mann with us, reporter with 900 CHML, of course, covering uh, the progression of the convoy. Ken, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. Well, well this initially started as uh, a, a convoy in regard to vaccine mandates for those crossing the border uh, in the trucking industry going to and fro, uh, delivering, uh, obviously, for the supply chain. And it's become more and more of a, um, you know, an anti-mandatory, I don't even want to say anti-vax convoy because that's not accurate because it's those, as Ken was talking to, that have been vaccinated, but they just don't believe that you know we should be ramming it down the throats of the 10 percent that aren't uh so this is a, a big to do here what's happening in the u.s with all of this let's bring in charles Sox, associate dean professor of operations and business analytics associate dean of impact and partnerships for the university of cincinnati and is with us now chuck thanks for the time i hope you're well uh doing well thanks scott so uh, the United States has the same border restrictions we do that you have to be vaccinated in order to get in. So it's it's the, the rules are the same both to and fro. Is this a big a deal in the U.S. as it is in Canada? Yeah, a- a- absolutely, Scott. Um, you know, freight transportation and, and especially trucking is the lifeblood of, of the U.S. economy. No matter where something's manufactured, it's, it's eventually going to end up a tr- on a truck at some point en route to, to the end users, to the customer. So, yeah, this is this is huge. And as, as you know, a lot of trade between between the U.S. and Canada, as well as Mexico, uh, automotive manufacturing in particular is, is at risk here. So, yeah, lo- lots of concerns around around the, the vaccine requirement. From what I understand, uh, you the United States has the same uh, protocol in place that Canada does, that you have to be vaccinated to go across the border or come back into the United States or Canadian going into uh, the United States. Are United States truckers protesting against the U.S. government regarding this is what we're seeing up here? Yeah, you know, I, I haven't seen that happening uh, in in the U.S. As you, I'm sure you, you know, we had the uh, the Biden administration's attempt to to impose vaccination requirements on on large employers in the U.S. through the the OSHA uh, OSHA organization, and that was overturned uh, last week by by the Supreme Court. So so we haven't had the kind of uh, uh, reaction here because that the mandate isn't enforced uh, internally domestically. Uh, any idea how many of U.S. truckers are vaccinated? Um, do we have those that that data? You know, I, I don't have the precise numbers, but I, I did find some statistics on the, the cross-border impact with, with Canada. Uh, they're estimating, you know, uh, as many as 30,000 drivers who cross the border either from the U.S. into Canada or Canada into the U.S. Uh, are, are unvaccinated at this point. 
So if both the United States and Canada are implementing these rules, what can what can we do moving forward to change this? Uh, do you see it changing? Uh, it's just gonna, it's going to present challenges. You know, I think manufacturers, uh, distributors, retailers are just going to have to uh, deal with longer delays uh, for their shipments. It's not you know, it's not going to completely shut down trade. Obviously, it's just going to create more headaches and delays, and you know, not having uh, you know products on the shelf in the grocery store. Uh, auto manufacturers in the U.S. are already facing challenges with shortages yeah. of, of computer chips, in particular. Uh, Toyota recently announced they're going to be curtailing their production uh, in February because of the chip shortage. So, so this is just going to add to the to those challenges, and obviously to the cost of everything. Uh, should both the U.S. and the Canadian government lift these restrictions for now, and just allow well, drivers to I, go I to and fro? Yeah, it, it's certainly something I, I think legislators and, and administrators need to consider. Is is the you know the economic impact of these restrictions? Um, it, you know, things are, the data's improving, statistics are improving. You know, as I said, you know, freight transportation, trucking is a, is really a critical, um, a critical industry uh, to both countries. And I, it probably would make a lot of sense for them to rethink this restriction. Uh, do you think it's a case of, of getting rid of the restriction altogether, or do you think it's just giving them more time? Some up here have said we need more time to get them all uh, vaccinated, but I don't know. You got to think two years into a pandemic. I mean, we're pretty, are we not vaccinated? <laughs> Most that are going. Yeah. To yeah. The, yeah. The vaccine has been, been available for quite a while. Uh, I, I think, you know, it's going to require some education, some promotion. I think, I think a lot of our ancestors in, in immigrants to North America came over because they, they didn't like being told what to do. So I think, yeah. I think yeah. kind of pivoting from mandates to education and promotion would, would be helpful. I think that's what this uh, discussion is all about. Charles Sox with us, Associate Dean, Professor of Operations and Business Analytics, Associate Dean of Impact and Partnerships for the University of Cincinnati. Chuck, thanks for the time and insight. Great discussion. Be well. Great talking with you, Scott. Thanks. You too. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine is on the board and making their way out of the newsroom around the big virtual roundtable. Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Well, uh, welcome, table heads. Good to see you all here and hear you all today. Hope you're all feeling well. Yeah, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Oh, yeah. All right. Let's start with the poll question of the day. As we always do, do you support proof of vaccine at LCBO and cannabis stores? Uh, it shows you how divided people are on this on the poll. 51% say no. 49% say yes are we vilifying the last 10 percent and dividing the country i'm really sorry i'm I'm sad it's come to this uh diana what are your thoughts should we have it for lcbo and cannabis stores too well i mean no we don't have it for grocery stores and we don't have it for any other stores so i'm gonna say no i don't think that they should have a vaccine mandate uh for lcbo and pot stores i mean why single those out maybe i'm missing something dave your thoughts um, you know what? I, I didn't, I was in the same boat when I first read about this. I thought that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to, to stop people from doing it. But if you look into it a little bit more, uh, there are, um, availabilities for pickup at, at the door. So you can actually get what you need, um, if you hmm. want it. So I, I think that maybe it, there is some room for, for that to be in place if, uh, that's involved. But again, it, it's one of those very tricky things that you don't necessarily want to, uh, you know, be harming people who have uh, addictions issues. Well, what are your thoughts? 
Well, I mean, I remember us joking about this back at the start of, like, oh, if you want to get everyone yeah. vaccinated real fast, go for it. Just make it the LCBO and the and the cannabis shops. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm on the fence with it. You know what? I I don't see the extreme need. I would like to see everyone vaccinated. I would like to see everyone healthy and happy and vaccinated. And there's going to be people who are yelling at me for for describing it that way. Whatever. That's my viewpoint. But uh, for it's not the highest up on priorities of, of places where you need a vax port, yeah. I think. I, especially with 90% of us uh, vaccinated. All right. And, you know, I, I'm just not sure how many more people we can get vaccinated. And if it's worth beating, you know, and dividing the country over this. I mean, I, I'm just and, and you see where the convoy has come. Um, and Ken Mann, I was talking to earlier, uh, said that he had talked to lots of people who were protesting along the way that were fully vaccinated and want everybody to be vaccinated, but think that this has just gone too far. And, and that, uh, that, that hammering the last 10% to get vaccinated is, and making it mandatory is just too much. Um, your thoughts on where we are with this convoy, considering 90% are already vaccinated. Both governments are doing this. I mean, some have, I've had supply chain people on both sides say, yeah, it's going to be bad for the system. Yeah, it's not going to hurt that much. What are your thoughts about where we've come with all of this, Diana? Well, I mean, if you listen to some of the other clips that we had um, with regards to some truckers that don't necessarily agree with this convoy, um, I mean, I think a lot of people that are going to protest are are doing so not necessarily for the mandates, not necessarily for vaccine, but for other things as well. And just oh, yeah. using mm-hmm. it as obviously an excuse to get out there and, and, yeah. and, and preach whatever it is that they want to preach. Um, so, I mean, I think that, you know, if the vast majority of truckers are vaccinated, which is 90 percent, then who who's protesting? Yeah, exactly. that's what I want to know. Like, and I Dave, I, I read something yeah. as well saying that you know they were seeing trucks come through, and I know there are a lot of trucks, but you know they were they were saying that there were a lot of like pickup trucks and and cars that were part of the convoy as well. So I mean, I I don't know what to make of this. Yeah, it has become a vehicle for protest, uh, not just whatever the truckers' issues were in crossing the U.S. and, and Canada border. Dave, are you are are you are you surprised it's come to this? I mean, it just seems like I'm I'm just shaking my head that you know that we're even having these discussions at this point, and and uh, and I'm not sure uh, how to move forward on this. What are your thoughts? I think it uh, I think it oversimplifies it to say that you know this is about trying to get the last ten percent vaccinated. This is not about getting the last 10% vaccinated because we know that's not going to happen. This is about making sure that those people who are driving trucks between the U.S. and Canada are getting vaccinated. This is about, you know, people who are taking this on as their livelihood to make sure that they're not making other people sick. You know, there are many people who want to say that they would go down to the States in a second. But the thing is, is that when you do that, you do put yourself in in more of a risk of getting um, COVID-19. It's even worse if you aren't vaccinated. So I don't think it's necessarily as simple as saying this is about, you know, getting the 10% done. Uh, this is about making sure that people who have a job to do that are trying to, um, you know, that, that 
So it's friends. a safety issue for you then, yeah. Dave. It's yeah. about keeping everybody safe. Absolutely. Again, at 90%, can we keep it as any more safe than what we are? Again, uh, you know, again though, to, uh, Scott, I don't think it's about the, the 90% or the 10%. This is about truckers. This is not about uh, you know anti-vaxxers. It's not about people who are against the mandate. This is about uh, you know people who have a job to do that are and are trying to keep people safe. So for you, it's just it's somebody who crosses uh, the border from one country into another and potentially could be bringing the disease with them. So therefore, uh, they have a responsibility and they should be vaccinated. Yeah, if you travel to the States, you can't get back into Canada without having to undergo a quarantine or or any of that kind of thing. If you're not vaccinated, you can't even get across the border if you're not vaccinated. So I don't see why should it be different for truckers? Exactly. Yeah. All right. Uh, Will, you want to weigh in on this? Your thoughts on what we have? Keep it short. Yeah. My uh, shortest thought on this is what's interesting about the experience overall is it's more like this convoy in a way is just a vessel that a lot of people are pouring their own thoughts and feelings and opinions and they're bringing all this other stuff and putting it on them no matter how disjointed it is from whatever the original idea of the creators of the convoy uh, had. Whatever it is, it's other people putting a lot of their own stuff on it and we see more and more instances like this in our modern history over the past five ten years and that's why it stands out to me about it but it makes the things a lot more muddled uh okay i'm gonna ask one more question should we be uh, although I'm, I'm repeating myself here should we should this be getting the attention that it is getting considering supply chains are still moving uh considering 90 percent of them are um are vaccinated uh does this really matter anymore that we because we've come to this point and i know dave you said that you know uh, getting the last 10 percent isn't isn't the the point here but considering we have come as far as we have do, do you think it's worth having these discussions i mean i understand the truckers because it's being forced on them but it just I, i'm just surprised we're getting our knickers in a knot over this with 90 percent vaccination diana well, I think we, we just said that, though, that I, I don't think it yeah. has anything to do with vaccination. I think it has to do with the fact that, you know, that people are being told they have to be vaccinated. I, I think so. Uh, but I think it goes beyond that as well. Like some of the stuff that I've heard from some of the protesters today. I mean, it, it has, vaccination is kind of a moot point. Like, I, I don't think it has anything to do with that. Yeah. I think yeah. it's just a way to, you know, for a lot of people. I, I, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, Ken was there. We heard from him and what he said and he talked to people. Um, but I, I I think, you know, we should be having these conversations for sure, I guess. But I, I don't think it has anything to do with vaccination. And we've talked this point to death. I'd rather see this on the healthcare system rather than what this issue is. I would rather be spending this time talking about how we can improve uh, and help our healthcare workers than this. To me, this just seems a dog chasing a tail, but, you know, we'll see where it goes. Thank you, Tableheads. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Today is Holocaust Remembrance Day, marking the 77 years ago that the Allies liberated the Auschwitz concentration camp. The day is meant to commemorate and educate so that genocides like this don't happen again. Steve Schaefer with the Jewish Federation of Edmonton tells Global News Radio, even during the pandemic, we've had people trivialize the Holocaust, equating Nazism with vaccination. I would hope that at best it is pure ignorance. Uh, My fear is that there is an ingrained uh, anti-Semitic 
uh, trope there that just continues to perpetuate itself generation after generation and and will get stronger as the memories of the Holocaust fade. Over 6 million Jews died as a result of mass shootings, starvation, torture and gassings between 1933 and 1945. All right, in the last uh, week or so, we have certainly heard of tensions flaring along the border between Russia and the Ukraine and military presence increasing there on both sides uh, of the border and allies, including Canada, uh, sending help and getting involved. And um, we know this issue has been there for a while, uh, but it seems that all of a sudden this has gone from a back burner issue to something of immediacy uh, and quickly moved to the front. Let's bring in Christian Leprac, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Christian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am indeed enjoying the snow and uh, glad to be on with you. It's truly winter now, that's for sure. Uh, your thoughts on the speed of this and how it has escalated so quickly. Why is that? Uh, well, because of timing. If you look at the previous pattern, uh, Georgia, so the Russian uh, invasion of uh uh, of of the enclaves in in Georgia um, happened uh, during the uh, uh, during the Olympics. Uh, Crimea happened during the Olympics. Uh, the first during Beijing Summer Olympics. The second during the uh, uh, Sochi Winter Olympics. And so I think uh, Putin is on a timeline. And uh, militarily, we always knew it would take him about three months, roughly, to pull the troops and equipment together that he would need. Um, and uh, I think this is what his gambit is again now. And so part of the Western gambit is to try to derail not just his plans, but also his timeline. Because, of course, if he does it at a time other than the Olympics, this is going to get much bigger coverage. Otherwise, uh, there's a good chance it would get uh, at least somewhat drowned out by the noise from the Olympics. Lots. There's been lots of chatter uh, about the relation uh, of this event or what's happening along the border there and the Beijing Olympics. Um, is there truth to, uh, you know, rumors that China has said to Russia, hey, don't be doing this during the games. If you want to do it, you best be doing it beforehand. And therefore, we could see and something is imminent before the Olympics. Well, this is two autocrats with a large ego competing against one another, right? So China wants to have center stage with its ultra-nationalist uh, Olympics that it's about to stage, uh, and they're afraid of being upstaged by uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, so I can see how, you know, this is why people always talk about this axis, this alliance between Moscow and Beijing, but we always know that these uh, authoritarian regimes have a hard time getting along because ultimately they are fundamentally self-interested uh, in their behavior and not really interested in ever looking out for anyone else's interest. Uh, even if uh, invasion is imminent and this does happen before the Beijing Olympics, will this? do you think this will be lost in the sauce with the Olympics or will that make people just even look closer at all of this? Well, so I think it actually the invasion is not imminent because uh, the MI6, the UK Foreign Intelligence Service, effectively called it out. Uh, and what I had, uh, what you and I had chatted about previously, that what I think Putin is up to is staging a counter revolution in Kiev. He's right. going to use his GRU military intelligence agents that are already uh, embedded widely in Ukrainian institutions. Uh, he's probably going to send in some special ops into Kiev, and he's basically going to change the government. He's going to say to the world, "Oops, I guess now you'll have to." 
to deal with my people. The other people are out. Uh, so uh, I think that's his plan. And the uh, soldiers are basically an insurance policy. It's a way of drawing away security detail um, from Kiev to the borders uh, so as to minimize any resistance within Kiev. Can he walk in and just change the government, change the the uh, the reign of command that way? Well, it seems to have worked for him all right. And I mean, he just uh, effectively um, expanded his sphere of influence into Kazakhstan by sending in 2,500 special ops, allegedly to quell the uh, unrest there, which uh, I would be surprised he himself stoked. Um, Armenia is solidly back in uh, Moscow's orbit now. Uh, Belarus, of course. Uh, so I think he's sort of reasonably confident that uh, that this might work. And uh, I think the effort here internationally is to sow as much doubt as possible in terms of deterrence and defense as to whether that plan can work to begin with and whether that plan can actually take hold. That is to say, whether a uh, revolutionary, counter-revolutionary pro-Moscow government uh, would actually have the ability to assert uh, itself and its legitimacy and interests. And I think that's what the Russian soldiers are there for in case that uh, they're basically the plan B in case plan A doesn't work. Wow. Uh, So where do you see this going? And uh, And what is the timeline in regard to the Olympics? So there's this two-track effort. One is dialogue and diplomacy. The other one is deterrence and defense. Um, And so you try to keep the Russians engaged. And at the same time, you try to make sure uh, Putin knows that the calculus that he has, uh, the West is on to him and that it might not uh, add up because, of course, he's up for re-election. So if he doesn't succeed in Mm -hmm. Ukraine, uh, that's going to be not so good for his re-election gambit. And, of course, part of the whole Ukraine show is about him getting re-elected. So uh, this is very much about sowing doubt about about success. Uh, We'll also have to see eventually once he gets into springtime, um, it's going to be more difficult for him to do because the rivers won't be frozen over. Uh, so it's going to be much more difficult to uh, uh, to launch sort of a more a larger scale operation. So the longer he waits, uh, the smaller his operation is likely going to have to be. But he clearly has a whole host of options currently at his disposal. Um, and he's a very uh, a cunning actor. So I wouldn't underestimate uh, what aces he thinks he still has up his sleeve. What worries me is that he's, of course, paranoid. I mean, his discourse about the West and the Americans and NATO to get him uh, and he's surrounded by people who buy into his paranoia and conspiracy theories the pragmatists are all gone they're all the ultra nationalists that are left uh, and so he's only getting yes men around him which is deeply troubling christian leprac with us professor at the royal military college of canada and queen's university and a fellow at the mcdonald laurier institute christian as always thanks for the time be well it's been my pleasure thank you a uh, note from Tom here. He says he's confused. Uh, Justin Trudeau is quarantining after being exposed to someone with COVID-19, but he is fully vaccinated and boosted and stated that if, uh, and it is stated on the website, if you are fully vaccinated, you don't need to quarantine uh, as long as you have the clean test and are not showing any symptoms. So what's going on here? Uh, so let's see if we can find some clarity here. Uh, the tweet from the Prime Minister uh, 
uh, said, last night I learned that I had been exposed to COVID-19. My rapid test results were negative. I think you need a PCR test uh, to to move forward and uh, avoid quarantining. I am following uh, Ottawa Health rules and isolating for five days. I feel fine and I'll be working from home. Stay safe, everyone, and please get vaccinated, says uh, Justin Trudeau on Twitter. So uh, I think the confusion, Tom uh, thought that this was a PCR test. It turns out it's a rapid test. Uh, that being said, the prime minister, I know testing is tough right now, but you have to think if you're the prime minister, you can get your PCR test pretty quick and the results back pretty quick too. Uh, so we'll see in a couple of days uh, where this goes. But yeah, uh, Tom's right. Uh, once you do have the clean slate and you're not showing the signs of of, uh, of of symptoms or anything, you're, you're free to move on. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how long it takes for uh, the Prime Minister to clear all of this up. All right, uh, let's... Uh, oh, the phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221, star uh, 9900 on your cell. Always looking for your last word at uh, the end of the show. Jeff, we recorded him earlier, his thoughts on where we are with all uh, the divisiveness we're experiencing in this country around vaccination. All right. Thanks. Uh, thanks for giving me a little bit of time here. The truckers. I'm so thankful that somebody's taking action to really get the voice of a lot of the people out there. The fact that we say there's 90% vaccinated and we're only worried about the 10. Well, let's forget all that. The reality of it is probably at least from the people that I know, 50% of the people that got vaccinated did it under duress. So the fact that we're trying to, to, to put this narrative out there that's saying that we're all in favor. No, we're not all in favor, obviously. Otherwise, vaccinated people would not be supporting the truckers the way they are and giving their two cents worth. We just did it. I got vaccinated, but I did it under duress. I need to put food on my table. And I had no backup for that. So that, that, that's about it. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jeff, for the call. Much appreciated. There you go. Um, Jeff, you know, saying the only reason he did it was because he had to. Uh, He wanted to keep putting food on the table, Um, which is a very valid point. But I'm guessing those on the other side uh, would say, great, that has convinced you to get vaccinated. And the 90 percent vaccination rate has got us to where we are. So, uh (laughs) You know, again, I I just I don't believe this has to be as divisive an issue as it is. I mean, you know, again, instead of instead of congratulating everybody for what we have done over the last year and and what we've done to 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 hopefully get out the other end of this and and how we've gotten through this and and gotten people vaccinated, we should be proud of. Uh, And instead, we're you know, we're forcing people to do what the majority of people have already done anyway. And and again, I, I'm not sure we're going to get many more over the hill. But but does it even matter? Uh, Jimmy's on the line. Jimmy, what are your thoughts? Well, here's the deal. I'm a restaurant owner in Hamilton. I've been closed for seven months out of 24. The truckers need to suck it up because Everybody shouldn't have to pay for their stupidity. Simple. Yeah, that make uh, you know. I I, I I get what you're saying 100. percent I get what you're saying 100. percent But um, uh, again, I I, I I don't think that I, I don't think that last 10 percent is gonna gonna 
going to accomplish anything. But go ahead, have your point. Go ahead. Nurses don't have to do it. Doctors don't have to do it. Uh, you know, uh, Catholic school board is going to go on strike because they're being made to do it. Like it's all or nothing. Or don't make me close my restaurant and suffer suffer financial consequences. Yeah. No, I hear you, Jeff. So, you know, there's there's another point of view that, you know, uh, get your damn vaccine so we can open up his damn restaurant. I get it. Uh, I'm just sad it's come to this point where we've got people holding people down. I, I'm not sure what else we can do. We take away their jobs. We we hold them down and, and roll up their sleeve. And I'm fully vaccinated. I get it. I And I encourage everybody to. You should. But I don't, I'm just, I'm having a hard time understanding why we're at the intersection that we are. Uh, As I've said uh, earlier today, uh, you know, I'm just, um, I guess I'm not surprised, but I'm incredibly disappointed that this discussion about mandatory vaccine and and the trucking convoy or or whatever you want to call it um, has gotten to where it is because I just, I don't think it's necessary. I don't think we need to be here. But as a member of the media, I, I have to look in the mirror and think that uh, it's people like me and people in my business that are throwing fuel on this fire as well. Um, and, and, and that saddens me uh, because, uh, you know, we've become on either this team or that team and each one hates the other. There's no room for chatter, compromise. And this, to me, is a U.S. system up in Canada. And it's sad that we even have to be where we are uh, with what the news story of the day is. That's my feeling. Let's bring in Jeffrey Dvorkin, a senior fellow at Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeffrey, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. I hope you are too, Scott. Uh, your thoughts on what we are seeing. Do we, do we have to be here? Uh, are you surprised that we are here? Because it seems that this has turned into uh, a, a protest of, of various things. It's a very tough story to cover in a way that allows people to say, oh, that was a very fair treatment of what's going on. Um, because everything has become so binary. Everybody's either on one side or the other. And frankly, I don't see a kind of common cause to kind of blend the two. And in the middle of this are journalists, the media, uh, people who are trying to report on what's going on and do it in a way that that allows people to say, okay, now I understand this a little bit better. And we haven't seen much of that. So I haven't anyway. Maybe you have, but I haven't. It seems that instead of celebrating the fact that we've got 90% of the population vaccinated, which is just unbelievable considering where we started, that we're divided over a small portion of the population, a lot of whom may not get vaccinated anyway. I mean, this is not uncommon. Absolutely right, Scott. Uh, The problem is the fact that People are feeling very entitled to their points of view in a way that undermines the idea of experts or professionals, whether in the media, in government, in universities, in churches. Um, People are saying, I'm responsible for my own ideas. I don't have to pay attention to what somebody else is telling me. And I think that this is, as as I... discovered when I wrote this book, Trusting the News in a Digital Age, people are much more convinced of the rightness of their opinion. 
and they seek out other forms of journalism or of mm. media that tend to support their own ideas. And so that's part of the problem that we're faced with right now. We've certainly heard a lot of that, Jeff, but where does this lead? When does this pendulum swing back? Because if a global pandemic doesn't do it, uh, it either makes it worse or makes it better. Do we need to be here? Do we need to be at this crossroads? I don't think we have an alternative right now. Um, people are feeling very aggrieved, kind of powerless at a time when the world is appears to be and probably is more complicated now than ever before. And when you find people are looking around and saying, I need a, a simpler solution to this complicated problem. And then people kind of reach out to, uh, you know, single ideas, ones that support their own what these sociologists call bias confirmation. They mm. want to be confirmed of their own feelings. And this is part of the problem now that I think has been exacerbated by the internet, by the digital culture, which is that people are entitled to their own opinions, but they're not entitled to their own facts. Mm. And yet now we we're at a time when people are saying, well, my facts are just as good as anybody else's. And so you have this pushback against various experts, especially in the COVID environment. And truth to tell, I don't think the public has been that well served by the scientific community, which seemed, and the political, and the political elites, which seem to be changing their mind about how we can handle this from almost from day to day. And that becomes part of the issue. We are subject to a variety of ideas and opinions. And uh, let's do it this way. No, let's do it that way. Let's open up the shops. No, we keep, have to keep them closed. No wonder people are saying, the heck with this. I yeah. want a solution to all this chaos. And that's part of the vibe, in my opinion, that's driving the trucker protest. We've only got about 30 seconds left, Jeff. Advice for Canadians that are trying to consume all of this and make sense out of it all. How do we stop being biased like that? I think we need to find a slower way to consume the media. And to basically, when we see a story on the Internet, the first question we should ask is, who's telling us this? Where does this come from? How do we know? And when we ask that question, some clarity may emerge. Jeffrey Dvorkin with a senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeff, fascinating conversation. We'll chat again. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Bye-bye. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've talked about it an awfully lot an awful lot but let's talk about it even more how do we fix the crumbling canadian healthcare system reza deber is with us professor with the institute of health policy management and evaluation university of toronto and author of treating Healthcare: how the canadian system works and how it could work better reza thank you so much for taking the time to join us greatly appreciate it thank you 
So it seems COVID-19 and the whole discussion has taken a bit of a different turn in the sense that it's less about the dangers of COVID-19 as opposed to uh, the dangers of a healthcare system, which unfortunately has been neglected for decades and is now crumbling under uh, the strain of an overworked system due to a global pandemic. Uh, has the discussion changed? Are we willing to have this discussion? It seems we spend a lot of time bragging about how great it is because it's universal, but we don't want to have the discussion on how we can sustain it or make it better or alleviate wait times or hallway medicine. I think a part of the thing is the question of what they call surge capacity, which is how much extra stuff are you going to have that you're not using in order that you have it if when a crisis arrives. And in order to try to, quote, save money, uh, they haven't done that. I mean, hospitals don't have a lot of extra beds. You don't have a lot more staff on call uh, there than you paying than you would need. So that's one of the things that became very problematic with COVID. Uh, that being said, uh, you know, I've heard the discussion about surge capacity, but we're talking about a system that prior to COVID uh, was having a hard time with wait lines, wait times, and hallway medicine. So if we just, you know, make sure that those things are taken care of, will not we have the staff in order in place when there is a need for surge capacity? I mean, I, I don't think we're talking about having too much capacity here. We don't even have enough to do the basic basic stuff. So if we address that, would that would that not give us that surge capacity? It depends on what happens and where. And, you know, uh, one of the interesting things that has been happening with COVID is recognizing that certain things can be done online so that if you have people who have uh, the time and ability, they can be treating people who are in other places. And one of the problems with Canada is that it's a provincial responsibility mm. so that if you have um, extra ability in Toronto, you can't use that to help people in Manitoba or Yukon or PEI because they're not licensed to practice there. So again, we remember when this all started, it was split the cost 50-50 between the provinces and the feds. That's certainly not the case now with the provinces paying 20-25% of this bill. What is the solution? How can, how can we make this better? Is it about uh, uh, adding more funds from the federal government? Is it about bringing in a private element to help uh, sustain this? What are some of the solutions? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is very complex because it depends what you're talking about. One of the best things you can do is to prevent people from getting a sick in the first place. So this this is where you start getting into the determinants of health. So look at who have been the people who have had the most problems with COVID. So you need to have housing, you need to have food, you need to have clothing. And so there's a lot of things, if we can go a little bit more upstream, we might not be having as much problems. That being said, Raisa, the uh, you know we have over uh, or up to a ninety percent vaccination rate. We've got some of the highest vaccination rates, uh, you know, in, in the world. Yet, if we have ten thousand people in a hospital and roughly twelve hundred in ICU, a country of thirty uh, thirty-eight million people, their hospital system is crumbling. A little bit that has been tricky because we don't necessarily have the numbers 
how many were in, infected, and apparently a lot of the people in hospital with COVID are not there because of COVID. Right. They're there because of other problems. Right. And they also have COVID. But I think one thing we can we can both agree on is the system is it's not it, it's not sustainable at this rate. It's crumbling. It's 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 really being stretched, and the people, the healthcare workers, stretched to their limit. So, uh, again, if we address issues of getting the system up and running in a normal situation, won't we have that surge capacity? Because, again, it seems for a country that's so well vaccinated and pays so much for health care that it doesn't take much to bring it to its knees. Yeah, I'm not sure I'd necessarily say that. I think it's been a tragedy. And I think that, you know, we've had all kinds of things disrupted. I mean, look at what's happened to the restaurant business. Look what's happening to universities and schools trying to teach online. So how do we, so sol- how do we solve this race? Because, again, you're, what you said earlier was, uh, you know, it's stopping for people getting sick anyway. I mean, preventative medicine is always good. But, again, how do we solve this unsustainability problem with our health care system? What does it need? Yeah, I'm not sure that it means it's unsustainable. I think one of the things that, and the the medical profession, and that has been terrific about that, is to take a look and see what's necessary, what isn't necessary. Don't give care that people don't need because it's over two. Uh, There's not very many of us who would like to have surgery that we don't need. Mm -hmm. Uh, So figuring out how best to do it, how, um, I mean, primary care has been terrific in terms of how do you uh, keep your patients healthy and uh, see what it is they need while still having the resources that you need for people who, who need, like people who need cancer care and aren't getting it. This is going to be disastrous in the long run because you're going to have more health problems than you would have had if you gotten. So is this about management of the funds that we already have or is this about needing more funds either from the feds or privately? Uh, I don't think, well, you get a little bit careful when you talk about from the feds, because the federal money just goes into provincial general revenues. Strictly speaking, if you look at the Canada Health Act, all the federal government has to cover is hospital care and physician services. But we go care in so many other ways now. So for many years, the money has just gone into provincial revenues, and the province decides what they're going to do with it. So you think this is a problem at the provincial level because it seems that every single province across the country is having the same issue. Oh, yeah. It's, look, health care delivery is a provincial Yeah, problem. we know that. What we're trying to yeah. do is get at a solution here, and, and, and yeah. that's what, our, what, what I'm not sure. Is it, a, you're saying it's not additional funding, it's better management of the funds that we have? Is it, is it the federal government taking a, a bigger control over this and, and setting some guidelines? Well, yeah. where should we go? Well, I think one of the difficulties in something like COVID is you're learning as you go. Mm-hmm. Because you don't know what the issues are, how you treat people, and who needs what, until you've had it a little bit farther into the epidemic. So it's one of the problems public health has been having is that you're learning as you go. Yeah. Reza Deber with us, professor with the Institute yeah. of Health Policy Management and Evaluation, University of Toronto, author of Treating Healthcare, How the Canadian System Works and How It Could Work Better. Reza, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Oh, you're welcome. Take care.
Bye. I was very disappointed in that last interview um, because I was asking a lot of questions of a well-educated healthcare expert who's written books on the system and yet couldn't answer any of the questions, and um, which, you know, proves or, or perhaps says um, that really people don't know how to fix it. It's too complicated, and it's been made complicated by every government that's, you know, dinked with it. Or that they're just comfortable in the position they are and they really don't see the need to fix it. Um, you know, when you're talking about preventative medicine and surge capacity after going through what we've gone through, I, I, I just think it's it's nuts. I think you're missing the point. You're, uh, your boat has sailed into the wrong pier. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's the way it is. All right, feel free to keep sending us stuff. Uh, this from Kim. I thought it was quite uh, pertinent. Uh, Kim writes, hello, love your show. So that automatically gets you on. Uh, in regards to the trucker convoy, I'm so proud of the truckers in the convoy. I hear people say it's a waste of time and suck it up. This will not accomplish anything. Uh, do I think this will accomplish anything politically? No, our own government can't accomplish anything politically. So how can these truckers do anything? But they are already have done something, though. I feel this country is in a dark place. We're beaten down and tired of it all. People have been incredibly hateful over the last two years on both sides. Today I had to drive through the crowd of supporters at Centennial and it was wonderful. Hundreds, maybe even more than a thousand uh, same uh, came across uh, some from across the country at every overpass. Uh, people were out. They were smiling, cheering, waving flags. Others were so kind, making sandwiches, bringing donuts and snacks uh, for those in the crowd and the truckers. Unvaxxed and vaxxed stood side by side. They may not be there for the same reason some are there in support some are there just to witness it doesn't matter they are there side by side i didn't see or hear anyone telling people i hope you get covid and your grandparents end up dying this is what i hear and see regularly on the internet it's horrible what i saw were people laughing and smiling to me no matter what happens in ottawa this convoy was a hundred percent worth it says kim there you go uh again it's not necessarily about the truckers and how many of them are vaccinated going across the border. This is even those that are vaccinated concerned about the removal of basic rights and how we have vilified people who don't see it the same way we do. Uh, there's valid arguments on both sides and it's time we come together and we talk about these instead of you're on that team. I'm on this team. Get the hell out of my way. Cause that's, what we saw happen in the United States. And as much as we sit up here with our nose in the air, smug, thinking we're better than them, are we really? All right, uh, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the news at 6 o'clock. You can read him in your spectator. And he's here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing great, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. You want to comment on the, um, the convoy? I, you know, I, I'm just, I, I'm kind of sad it's got to this point, um, you know, on, on, on all sides. It's just, it, it, to me, it doesn't need to be happening. It's, it's just divisive on both sides. Uh, your thoughts? Well, I'll say what I said yesterday when we were chatting, and that is um, this pandemic is now a health thing and it's a politics thing. And you cannot separate the two, unfortunately. And you can say, well, it's just about the virus. And yeah, it is about the virus, but that has become a giant political fight, which has, you know, comments now saying, well, anyone who goes to this or is on a bridge or whatever is just fringe. And, you know, I look at this and I go, 
if somebody wants to do this or go out and drive a truck across the country or go to a bridge and wave a flag and they feel strongly about it, do we have to, as you just said, do we have to call them a name? Or can we say, you know what, this is kind of what our country is where you're free to have different opinions and do different things and I don't have to by law agree with you I have to follow laws but I don't have to agree with you and so to me it's the name calling and you've just alluded to it it's the name calling that's a big part of this I you know coming up with names calling people racists for holding views like you can disagree with them you can say here are the rules but I just think that the, the, it's the stuff that we're trying to create tribes and then make sure that we're on the right tribe and we're fighting with yeah. the other tribe. That's not helpful. Yeah. So uh, what is this? Is it getting the attention of the former or the latter? Is this, is this is, you know, the, the note I just read, this lady thinks it's 100% worth it because she thinks it's bringing people together. Well, uh, okay, um, maybe... And I look, I don't uh, I think her name was Kim. I don't want to dispute. I think if she was there and that's what she saw, I'm not going to say that that's not doing that with those people. Um, but I like as the people who were there that it was bringing them together. I, I, I'm not sure it's bringing anyone together, though. And the only reason I say that is because, once again, if you are thinking that these truckers and the people who support them are the fringe and the wing nuts, you're probably on social media saying these people well, are all I think, lunatics. And I think there's fringe. I, I think I think the fringe are definitely there, but I think there's a lot of mainstream people there. And again, I don't think this is this is still about not, getting the vaccine. Of, but Scott, there's fringe on the other side too. There's extreme. Yeah, well, on the absolutely, other side. So, absolutely. And, and so again, I think this, and it's inevitable. If you do anything, you're going to now have people who take each side. And if you're on the other side, you're not just doing something I disagree with. You are wacko. You are a name. Yeah. We've got to call you a name. We yeah. can't just say, I'm not going out to support them, but feel free. It's Canada. Do what you like. We have to then attach a name to those that's disparaging. And on the other side as well, because, you know, I heard lots of people today saying, you know, the prime minister is a coward for not coming out and this and that. Look, I, I don't know that we have to always attach a disparaging name or title to someone who does something that we disagree with, but that's our default position now. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming right up after the 6 o'clock news, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Going to be a fascinating show tonight, Scott. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. As always, uh, oh, we forgot to thank the staff first. Thank you to the two Wills. Oh, no, just one Will today. It was a one Will show today. Uh, There you go. Thanks, Will, for producing both uh, technically and content. Also, thanks to uh, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard in the newsroom. And thanks to you for listening. Can't do it without you. And as always, we leave it to you, the CHML listener, to have the last word. Hey, Scott, I was hearing that you were having some hearing issues earlier today. Uh, Yeah, I just wanted to let you know that uh, you guys... It's not funny. It's not really. What? 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.